All right, as you've probably gathered, we are starting a new uh, teaching series this weekend on the book of Colossians. And just a quick show of hands, how many of you have read the book of Colossians before? All right, so a number of you have, a number of you know a bit about it. We're hoping to dig a little more deeply into it uh, over the next eight weeks. So it's a, a book with four chapters, uh, but we're going to spend eight weeks on it. And so here's how Pastor Randy has kind of broken it down. Today, I'm going to lay some kind of groundwork and framework for the teaching uh, looking at the beginning and a little bit at the end. And then next week, Pastor Randy will pick up uh, with the middle part of chapter one, and then we'll spend another week in chapter one, and then and you can see on through two, three, and all the way through chapter four. And uh, our hope and prayer is that whether you've read it once or uh, a dozen times or not at all, uh, all of us collectively uh, would commit to spending the next eight weeks reading through, uh, praying through, and considering what God teaches us about our life with Christ and the fullness that he brings into it. So at the bottom of this slide, you can see there's a, a number we use, Texan Church. Uh, let me bring it up a little bit bigger. If you'd like to follow along, and if you're the kind of person who loves to get like daily text reminders or weekly text reminders with the content, so you don't have to think about it, it's just right there on your phone, get out your phone right now and text the word SUMMER to 847-665-1775. You can use that same number, by the way, to send us prayer requests or God sightings during worship or anytime during the week. Uh, so again, the number 8, uh, 847-665-1775. Uh, some of you also use the Church Center mobile app. We use that for lyrics for worship on the lawn. Uh, we use that for a variety of uh, ways to engage you. Uh, the same readings are also available there. You just got to open the app and find your way to it. It's on the main screen, though. You can see that if you open it to check in, for example, a little bit later on this morning. So uh, we'd love for all of us collectively to lean into time in God's Word. Now, one of the key themes uh, we're going to see <coughs> excuse me, in uh, this series is the emphasis on Christ. Right? You can see here, your fullness of life in Christ, and each of the themes uh, that we develop kind of ties back into that theme. Uh, and that's because the book of Colossians, more than any of the books in the New Testament, has a well-developed uh, theology of the divinity of Jesus. Uh, in theological terms, we call that Christology. And uh, as a result of that, we're going to tie together this whole series with this memory verse. And if you don't remember anything else... Uh, from our time in Colossians this summer. Hopefully you'll remember this. So we're going to try to repeat it every weekend throughout these eight weeks, commit it to memory starting today. So uh, the words are nice and big. They're on your screens. Let's join and read this out loud together. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made full. Around St. Peter, we talk about our mission as leading people to a full life in Christ. Based on John 10.10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Uh, and what we see here is Colossians kind of just plays into that nicely as well. In Christ, in Him, we also have been made full. We're going to explore what it means to be fully alive uh, from the perspective and the angle of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So with that then, uh, let's jump right in. In chapter 1, starting at verse 1, Paul introduces his letter, just like all other ancient letters, by identifying who's writing, to whom it's being addressed, and then with an opening greeting. It's kind of like if you send an email, there's usually a from and a to and maybe a subject line, and then you probably say something like, hey, how's it going? Hope you're having a great summer. Hey, by the way, this or that or whatever it is you want to say. Uh, it's not all that different from formal letters and emails today. This is the way pretty much every ancient letter was composed. So Paul starts out identifying himself as the primary author. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, 
our brother. Now, this kind of just signals a little bit uh, some of the other details we can gather if we slow down and pay attention to the beginning and the ends of these New Testament letters. Paul is the primary author. Timothy, one of his disciples, uh, he also names as well. He does that in about half of his letters, kind of identifying Timothy or Sosthenes or a few other of his closest friends. And then he says, okay, here's who I'm writing to, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, to whom is Paul writing this letter? Uh, the city of Colossae, we know from uh, history, is located in modern-day Turkey. So if we were to zoom in on this map, what we would see is Colossae is located along the Meander River, uh, or the Lycus River, which feeds into the Meander River, and it's about 100 uh, miles to the east of Ephesus. In that region at that time, Ephesus was probably the most important city. It was a major uh, metropolitan area. It had a massive amphitheater uh, overlooking uh, that part of the sea, which you can actually go and visit there to this day. Um, Colossae also was once a major city. It was on a major trade route from the west to the east on the way to Ephesus. It was along the river. It had all those things going for it. In fact, it was, it was especially well-known for producing a certain kind of dyed wool. It was a deep, dark red. It was named after the city of Colossa. It was called Colossinus or something like that. Um, I don't think you can buy it today. I googled it. It's not available, but it was important back then. But in the year A.D. 17, and then again in the year 60, the city was completely leveled, along with a number of the others around it, by earthquakes. And so by the time Paul's writing this letter, probably in the early 60s, Uh, This once significant city now had been reduced to rubble, it had been partially rebuilt, but it would never achieve the fame, the notoriety, and significance it once had. It was kind of lost in the past, it was soon to be abandoned, and now is just a hill that hasn't even been excavated by archaeologists. So then why would Paul, uh, one of the greatest heroes of the faith, take time to write a letter to this kind of backwards town, forgotten in the past place that he had never actually been. We're going to unpack that starting today and as we roll through the next several weeks. But before we do that, um, I want to show you a few pictures from uh, a trip we recently took to Italy. Uh, And I'm going to do that to try to illustrate some of the reasons why Paul is writing this letter. So uh, these right here are a couple pictures of the catacombs in Rome. Anyone here ever been to Rome? A couple shows of hand. Do you guys go down to the catacombs? All right, so you remember a little bit of that. Anyone been to Paris? Right, a few others have been to Paris. Have you ever been down in the catacombs in Paris? Okay, I, I, I ask that because they are vastly different. The catacombs in Rome are empty, right? You see some burial spots, some old kind of places, some more elaborate, some that are simple. The catacombs in Paris are full of bones. And the reason is this. In Rome, uh, these catacombs were used by the early Christians before Constantine declared Christianity to be a legitimate religion in the year 325 A.D. And so they buried their bodies underground because the Roman custom at that time was cremation, so there was no cemeteries for the Christians to bury their bodies. They also used the place as a, as a gathering place for worship while they were being persecuted. And I'll show you why, or show you a few examples of that in just a moment. In Paris, uh, they had a different issue. 
uh, in Paris, they had cemeteries in the middle of the city center, and as Paris was growing, they had a problem with a lack of space and then also clean drinking water because the cemeteries were close to their water supply. So they emptied the cemeteries, took all the bones, put them down in the catacombs. So if you go to Paris, you'll see a bunch of bones. If you go to Rome, you'll see something like this. And then, if you're lucky, along the way, you'll see some examples of ancient Christian graffiti. Don't think of like uh, spray paint graffiti. Think of like symbols and words that were left by travelers, uh, either as souvenirs or mementos or as a form of prayer. In this case, you can see a couple examples, one of a bird, a dove perhaps, and another of a fish. These are some common ancient Christian symbols from the first, second, and third centuries AD. Uh, down to the lower right hand of the fish, you can maybe make out the Cairo. Uh, that's the first two Greek letters in the word Christ. Uh, and then you can also see all across these tombs, and there's like miles and miles and miles of these empty tombs in the catacombs, uh, words and names written in Greek, written in Aramaic, written in Latin, written in all sorts of different languages as travelers were coming to Rome, especially in the century or two after Christianity was established as an official religion. And they were going there, it would seem, uh, to pay homage and respect, especially to the apostles Peter and Paul who according to church tradition are actually buried in and around the city of Rome. So if you zoom in on this particular fragment here, you can almost make out the word Peter there. Now I show you this because in the early Christian tradition in Rome, it seems that people tried to gain access to spiritual power by praying a very early on to some of the saints, to Peter and to Paul. And, and this is also something that was taking place in Colossa, although with a slightly different direction. In Colossa, they were known for their worship of angels. Uh, and so in that whole region, they had a deep devotion to angelic powers. And there was one tradition in, in particular uh, that said in ancient Colossa, uh, around the time of that earthquake in the year 60 AD, the archangel Michael, in order to save the city, came down from heaven and struck the earth with a spear redirecting the flow of the Lycus River underground. And to this day, if you were to go there, you'll see that for part of its path, the Lycus River goes underground, and then it pops back up and it joins the meander. And so in some of the archaeological remains that have been discovered, you can see prayers to Michael and a number of the archangels. And, and the reason for it is to try to, again, ask for special help and some sort of supernatural power to deal with whatever the struggles were they were dealing with. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Now, here's another picture. This is not actually graffiti. Uh, this is a trash can and a sewer cover. And you may be wondering, why are you showing me that, Pastor Micah? Well, here's the reason why. If you ever go into our sanctuary, and if you look on the right-hand side in the stained glass windows, you'll see those four letters, S-P-Q-R. And for 15 years, people have been asking me, Pastor Micah, what does that mean? And I've explained to him, it stands for Senatus Populisca Romanum, which is Latin for to the Senate and people of Rome. And uh, and I was surprised when I was in Rome to find out it's all over the trash cans and over the sewer covers, and it's in the official uh, symbol for the city of Rome, and it simply means dedicated to the people and the Senate of Rome. And so it's on our stained glass window because Matthew was a tax collector for Rome, and that's the kind of connection. That's the only reason I have this in this, so we can go back to the sermon. Okay, um, so uh, here's one other thing. Talking about uh, accessing spiritual power and acts of spiritual devotion. Uh, some of you know the history of Martin Luther and may remember that in the year 1510, he traveled to Rome while he was a young monk 
uh, but he was really uh, disturbed by how he saw the religious leaders living in excess, having uh, all sorts of wealth and all sorts of possessions while most people lived in poverty. And the reason that they did in the church at that time was they were using spiritual traditions and customs to enrich themselves, including uh, through accessing these stairs. They're called the Holy Stairs, and according to church tradition, they were brought to Rome by Constantine's mother, Helen, from Jerusalem, and they were supposed to be the 52, I think was the number, stairs that, that Jesus climbed to get to Pontius Pilate's uh, palace, right? Um, now, we don't know if they're the actual stairs, but they were brought back, and here's the custom that was developed, and Luther saw this, and it really bothered him. Uh, you had to climb the stairs, and each step you had to pray a certain prayer. But here's the catch. You can't walk up on your feet. You had to climb up the stairs on your knees. Uh, and so it would take quite a bit of time, uh, and, it was, and it took quite a bit of effort. And you can see, actually, here, I was a little surprised, there was a young gentleman who was doing the exact same thing that they were doing 500 years ago, presumably uh, out of devotion to some particular person or uh, praying on behalf of someone in need. They now cover those stone steps with wood, uh, because the stones have been worn down through and they're unsafe to climb. And um, I show you that to say, even to this day, uh, people try to access spiritual power in some way or form in order to connect with God. The question becomes, whether it's climbing these stairs or praying certain prayers, are we accessing God in the way that he is invited to? We're going to explore that a little bit here today and then as we roll through the book of Colossians as well. Now, at the very end of the book of Colossians, Paul's introduced himself at the beginning. At the very end, he also signs off with his own hand. Most of the rest of the letter was probably written by Timothy. That's why he identified him at the beginning. He was probably his scribe writing down what Paul said. And Paul elsewhere said he didn't really have good handwriting. He had to write big and large because his, his handwriting was sloppy. And here he just says, I, Paul, uh, write this greeting with my own hand. He was signing it at the end. And he says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. What that tells us is that Paul was writing this while imprisoned, probably in Rome after the time of the book of Acts. And again, according to church tradition, this is where that would have been. Just outside the Colosseum, if you've been to Rome, you may remember the Colosseum. It's awesome, you know, where the gladiator games were. And there's the Roman Forum, their main central square. And just off of that is this small church. And you go down a set of circular stairs to the bottom. And when you're down at the bottom, you'll see the place where they say Paul was put in prison and maybe even Peter later. And you can see a little fresco on the wall there of the Apostle Paul. And there's Jesus next to him with the cross behind him, by the way. And um, so still to this day, you can go to the place where it, it's possible that Paul was in prison. Uh, there also is another church outside of the city of Rome. It's called St. Paul Outside the Walls. I'd never been there before, but it's a pretty impressive church with an awesome statue of Paul with a sword. He looks pretty fierce, doesn't he, right? And uh, inside the church, if you were to go in, it's, it's magnificent. Second largest church uh, in the Roman world, a second only to St. Peter in the Vatican, which is absolutely enormous. Uh, all along the upper portions of the wall, you'll see portraits of the various popes. 262, I think, was the number they said. And here are the last two. Uh, you may know of Pope Francis, the current pope, and the one before him, Pope Benedict. What's interesting is they've got about, I think it was 14 spots left, and their custom is that as soon as the last one is full, that'll be the end of time. And our guide told us, don't worry, popes tend to last for a little while, so I think we're all going to be okay. So, uh, 
Not sure if that's going to mean anything, but it's an interesting little detail. But if you go further into the church, what you'll see is there is a shrine uh, dedicated to the burial site of Paul. So according to tradition, his bones are right there underneath that church. And, and right where that spot is supposed to be, you can see in a little box there are some chains. They may be the chains Paul had, we don't know, but they may be similar to the ones he wore as he was nearing the end of his life and before he was to face execution. According to tradition, he was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. That was a merciful way to die. He wanted to send out a few last letters to some of the churches he had started, some of the people he knew, and Colossa was one of them, along with Ephesians, and it would seem uh, the letter to Philemon. Some of you know a little bit about that. And then also perhaps a few other letters, including one he references in the end of chapter 4 to the church in Laodicea, which was nearby Ephesus. So Paul then, uh, in chains, with some of his friends gathered around to encourage, support, and pray for him, wants to write to this young church and give them some word of encouragement uh, before the end of his life. So he says, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he begins into an extended prayer of thanksgiving, celebrating how God had already begun to work in the life of this little church in this kind of forgotten town. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I underlined those three words because those are probably three words that are pretty familiar to you from the other letters of Paul. For example, 1 Corinthians 13, often read in, in weddings. It ends with, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, right? Three of the Christian virtues that time and time again Paul wants to raise up and emphasize, similar to other lists that he'll often give, like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Again and again and again, what Paul says we should be focused on as followers of Jesus is not certain rituals, rites, and traditions. They're not bad, but on the pattern of life we see in Christ himself, the way of Jesus that's lived out in these Christian virtues, the faith that they have in Christ, the love that is the self-sacrificing service for others, and the hope that they have laid up in heaven. Of this, Paul says, you have heard from before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Now I'm emphasizing here a few details because in the beginning of Paul's letters, he almost always summarizes everything he's going to say later on in the first few verses, and that's happening here as well. He's writing, like I said, to correct some false teaching that had emerged in that church, especially around the worship of angels. I mentioned that a moment ago. And so he starts up by saying, remember the truth that you heard, the truth that transformed your hearts and minds. Remember how you first came to faith in Jesus Christ. This truth, this good news, this gospel, that's what that word means, uh, has come to you and indeed it is reaching the whole of the world uh, through the power of the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it, from Epaphras, right? Great job trying to read that name. It's a weird one, probably shortened from Epaphroditus, a common name in that era. Epaphras seems to be a disciple of Paul, probably from the time he spent on his third missionary journey in Ephesus, who then went back to his own hometown to start this church. Again, Paul had never been there, 
right? It says here, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul's signaling that he's never actually been to that church, but he knows a lot about it through his friend and their friend, Epaphras. What's interesting here is the way that Jesus brings good news to the world is through women and men and girls and boys who have heard a thing or two about Jesus, seek to put it in practice in their life, and then share what they have with their friends, the people who are close to them, and especially those who are close to them but far from Jesus. Paul couldn't get everywhere in the world, and so he relied on others to extend and multiply his ministry, and the same is true today. So as you seek to know Jesus and become more like him, as you seek to live that out consistently where you live, work, and play, you're doing the same thing that Paul and Epaphras and all the church from that time until today has done. As we seek to live out these things, faith, hope, and love. And so from this day, Paul says, uh, from the day that we have heard about you, we've never ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You may remember Jesus says, the one who is faithful and the one whose house is built on the rock is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. You remember that? Uh, and the one that builds on the sandy foundation, the unsure one that the rain comes, the storms come and they fade away. But the one who hears my words and puts them into practice, those are the ones who stand firm. Notice the similarity. Those who are filled with the knowledge of God and hears my words and those who walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, who put them into practice. Right? Following Jesus is as simple as that. I mean, it's, it's going to take you your whole life, but it's as simple as that. Hearing the word of God and trying to put it into practice. And as the Spirit of God works in and through you, he'll continue to transform you increasingly into the image of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says it in these next verses, it'll look like this. Bearing fruit in every good work, right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, like I talked about. Increasing in the knowledge of God, always with a hunger to know more about who God is and what he has done. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what does it look like for us to put into practice Jesus' words and ways? It, makes us, it, it looks like us increasingly looking like Jesus, growing to know more about him, and then thanking God our Father through him. And through that, I want you to pay attention to this point in the middle, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Remember I said Christians have forever tried to access spiritual power somehow or another, whether it's praying to this or that or the other person or even getting off track praying to angels. Paul wants to emphasize, you don't have to go anywhere else. God gives you all the power you need directly from him. So don't bother with anything else. Just go straight to the Father who knows and loves you and desires you to fill you with everything that is truly good. And why? Because he has already delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We no longer live in the darkness of sin and death. We are now children of the light, and as that light takes dwelling within us, it begins to shape us increasingly into the light of Christ, who is the light of the world, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's how we're going to get started. Uh, the next seven weeks, we're going to lean even deeper into some of these key themes. I just wanted to kind of paint the landscape before we dig deeper into it. But uh, for today, um, we're going to take some time to reflect on this during our upper room time here in a moment when we're also going to have communion. 